If you'd like to open your Bibles to Amos chapter 5, Amos chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. Amos 5, verses 1 through 17, and, and uh, we've been looking the past uh, couple of Sundays um, at uh, a, a few sermons from Amos that he preached, a series of sermons that he preached in Israel, probably in Bethel. Uh, and uh, you can kind of sense when a new sermon is starting um, over the last few weeks because he'll start with this phrase, hear this word, hear this word. And that's sort of a, a sign to us that he's, he's beginning a new message with a new theme and a new emphasis. Um, but this is the last of those uh, Hear This Word sermons, the, the Hear This Word series of sermons um, in verses 1 to 17. And so we're uh, chopping up uh, chapter 5 and just going to verse 17 today. And we'll um, continue uh, in the near future to pick it back up in verse 18. Um, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we stand out of respect for God's word and attentiveness to his word. Let's read this together with uh, reverence. Let's read this together with joy as we hear the truth of our God. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that, would, went out, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal, or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and in it devour, with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silence in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. It shall call the farmers into mourning, into wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You can have a seat. When I was younger, I was fascinated by the story of the Titanic. Um, I was 10 years old when the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio came out into theaters. My parents took me to, to see the movie and I was hooked. Uh, I started reading about the Titanic. I started checking out books at the library. I was captivated by the story, by uh, some of the historical facts, by some of the individuals aboard, what was on the menu in the dining halls. And uh, I, I was fascinated by the way that the ship so vividly illustrated the systems and structures of class in the world at that time. And part of what the movie seemed to uh, portray so well is the, the kind of decadent lifestyles of, of so many of the wealthy on board. They ate the finest foods, they drank the finest drinks, uh, their parties were lavish and ornate, they carried on laughing and dancing and partying and feasting, all while they sailed on to their doom in those icy waters, possessing a false sense of security, because after all they were aboard the ship that supposedly could never sink. Well, there may not be a better description of Israel in Amos' day. And many of the people carried on in their decadent and lavish lifestyles, eating the finest foods, drinking the finest drinks, laughing, dancing, feasting, parting, while they crushed the poor into the dust of the earth under their feet. And because of this, they were headed to a doom much like that of the passengers of the Titanic. Here's one major difference, though. In God's mercy, he had sent Amos and others like him to preach to and plead with Israel to change course. He had sent Amos to warn Israel that the iceberg of God's judgment was coming and to change course before the collision. In his mercy, the Lord sent for warning so that he might call them to repentance. And that's what I want to consider this morning as we look at Amos 5, 1 through 17, where we see this, this kind of big idea for me here that God pleads with us to turn to him before it's too late. And this morning, as we unpack that idea here in Amos 5, I, I'd like to start with just looking at and explaining the text and then looking at what we're supposed to think and believe and do in light of it. So we're going to look at explanation and then application. First, we, we want to do the explanation, though, so that we have our, our bearings regarding what this text is saying. So you might have felt when we began to, to read this text a few moments ago that, that it seemed kind of hard to follow, right? Uh, that's partly because the structure of this text is not exactly what we're used to in the kinds of texts that re we read today. Uh, this text is outlined in what we call a chiasm. If you could put the, the next slide up there. There we go. Okay, so you can see there in verses 1 to 3, it begins with a lament. And then in verses 4 to 6, we see a, a call. Um, in C, we see uh, in verse 7, an accusation. And then at the very center of this text, we see in verses 8 to 9, a hymn. And the thing with a chiasm is that a chiasm will list kind of a, a series of themes or ideas, and then it will repeat those in verse order. And so begins repeating it in verse order with an accusation in verses 10 to 13, a call in verses 14 to 15, and a lament again in verses 16 
to 17. And so with the text beginning and ending with a lament, you might imagine Amos preaching this sermon through tears. This is a lament. He says in verse 1, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. It's perhaps the first time we're seeing maybe somewhat of a, a softer side of Amos in the book. You, you might have sort of been picturing him as a serious and thundering figure, and so he was. But here we see him grieving over the people of Israel that he so loves and cares for. And for good reason, he says in verse 2, fallen no more to rise as the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. You see, he, he sees the coming judgment as a kind of death for Israel. And so this lament is a kind of funeral song here. And he calls Israel, he calls her the virgin Israel, meaning that she's going to die a premature death. And, and calling her a virgin, he's not, he's not intimating, uh, he's not speaking about her purity is, is sometimes intimated when the phrase is used in scripture. He's speaking of her stage of life. She's young, she never lived to her full potential, he's saying. You know, it's obviously funerals are sad no matter what. But there's something particularly painful about a person's death when they're young, when they never got to experience the life that they may have lived otherwise. This is what it's going to be like, Amos says, with Israel when God's judgment comes upon her. But now, don't mistake, he's not saying that Israel will cease to exist. We know Israel continues to exist to this day. He's engaging in a kind of hyperbole. The situation is still dire. He, he, he goes on to describe it in verse 3. He says, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. In other words, when the Assyrian army invades Israel, they will be so decimated and destroyed, he says that their army is going to have only a 10% survival rate. That's serious. And so if Israel doesn't repent then, Amos says, I'm not going to be the only one lamenting. So we see in verses 16 and 17, tells of the sad state of Israel's future, when in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, when everyone from professional lamenters to farmers will lament. You know, they used to have, uh, in those days, professional lamenters, people that you would hire to come and mourn and lament uh, in, in times of sorrow and sadness. Well, these professional lamenters would, would surely be lamenting here, but even the farmers would give up their task of farming in this time and be lamenting and mourning and wailing in grief because, the Lord says, I will pass through your midst. In their days of slavery in Egypt, in the Exodus, the Lord passed over them and refrained from judging them because of the blood of the Lamb, but here he will not pass over them. He will pass through them and decimate them in judgment. But of course, in, in his kindness, the Lord, he, he, he doesn't just send judgment upon his people without forewarning them. He sends them this, this prior announcement of his judgment so that they might turn to him and repent and escape the wrath to come. He says in verses four to six, this call to repentance, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba, for Gilgal shall certainly go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. You see, he's calling them, he's, he's urging them, he's pleading with them to turn, to repent, to truly seek him. And he sets this call up with contrast to what they had been doing. They had been seeking, he says, Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. Now, 
We won't go into all the the historical significance of these uh, places. Perhaps in your own study at home, you might get a a Bible dictionary or a a concordance and and, and see the the historical significance of these places that the Israelites uh, so loved because of their connection with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But in in light of this, in light of their, their connection, their historical significance, the Israel would make frequent journeys to these places and they would set up houses of worship there in, Beth, uh, in Bethel and in, in Gilgal. But they made the mistake, like so many before and so many after them, uh, who begin to love the places of God more than the God of the place. You see this in, in so many American churches and, and Christians today, where an, affic- an affection for a house of worship can begin to, to outweigh what they should be intending to do there, namely meet the living God. They, they begin to love the place of God more than the God of the place. They begin to love the, the, the liturgy more than the Lord of the liturgy. They love the hymns and the prayers and the songs and they love the, the middle class Christianity and the respectability that comes from such associations, but they don't love God and there's no real change or repentance or commitment to the Lord. This is the kind of worship that Israel embodied. And so you see that the, the Lord is not calling them to seek ritual and routine, but to seek Him. Of course, seeking Him is always manifested in a life of obedience to Him. Which is why in verses 14 to 15, He says, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You see, God's, he's not fooled by their pious prayers and their pompous uh, words. He's not fooled by this. He's not fooled by their, their false worship in their houses of worship. God knows the thoughts of our hearts. He knows when we merely honor him with our lips while our hearts are, are far from him. But it's not hard for us to see either. Because a person who who truly seeks God, as we see here, seeks good and not evil. A people who truly seek God hate evil and love good. A a true encounter with God issues in a true change of life. It's, It's a damning delusion to think that you can know the one true God and remain morally unchanged. It is a damning delusion to think that you can encounter the risen Lord and receive his forgiveness without hating sin and loving righteousness. It's a damning delusion to think yourself to truly be a Christian and yet remain unconcerned for your neighbor and compassionless toward the poor. It's a damning delusion. And yet that's how Israel had carried on, worshiping in Bethel and Gilgal and making their their, their treks to to Beersheba, professing the faith, singing the hymns, praying the prayers, giving the offerings. Yet their lives remained unchanged. It's a damning delusion. And this is what the Lord accuses them of in in verse 7, in verses 10 to 13. In verse 7, he says of them that they are those who turn justice to wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. And he goes on to describe more and more what he means by that in greater detail in verses 10 to 13. He says says that they hate him who reproves at the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Here he's speaking about their their court system, their court cases were held at the city gate. And even within their court system, there was no place for righteousness and truth. 
He says of them, he goes on to say, you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. The, the rich and royal bureaucrats there were placing oppressive tax burdens on the poor farmers surrounding their cities. Verse 12, he says, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. In other words, instead of the courts being a place for righteousness and truth, judges took bribes to decide cases that afflicted the innocent poor and gave favorable decisions to the wealthy elite. Things had gotten so corrupt and so bad that verse 13 says that even those who had enough moral sense to not participate in those activities just went on about their business as if nothing was wrong and kept quiet. And in a way, that's just as bad, isn't it? That's probably where more of us fall than, than in, the, in the prior category. You might think of those, those German citizens, though, who didn't participate in the Holocaust, but who carried quietly on about their business while they were continually smelling, burning human flesh in the concentration camps nearby or, or, or watching their Jewish neighbors slowly but surely disappearing around them. You might think of Dr. King during the Civil Rights Movement. They say that what most pained him was not the words of his enemies, but the silence of his friends. It's ought to remind us, friends, that in the face of social injustice, God not only abhors sins of commission, but sins of omission as well. In other words, he, the Lord not only hates when we do sinful things that we're not supposed to do, sins of commission, but he also hates when we fail to do the righteous things that we're supposed to do, sins of omission. He not only abhors sins that actively oppress the poor and needy, but he abhors the sin of those who do nothing when they're fully capable of doing something. And since Israel had been so corrupted from top to bottom, from those subjugating the poor and vulnerable to those who were silent in the midst of it, the Lord's glory demanded punishment. And that's what that central hymn there in verses eight to nine shows us. Which is likely a hymn regularly sung at Bethel and Gilgal, one regularly on the, on the lips of Amos's hearers. But what they didn't realize is that the glories they sang and spoke of in this song were the same glories that condemned them. The hymn says, He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. The God of Israel, he says, is the creator God. He spoke the constellations into existence. He controls the movement of times and seasons and days and weeks. He caused the rains to fall on the children of man and the sun to shine upon them. And his glory and his kindness, therefore, demands our unswerving allegiance and obedience. Yet what Israel had done in continually spurning his kindness and trampling on his glory demanded that the one who controls all things turns all things against Israel in judgment. Their doom is awaiting them. And so Amos laments. Fallen is the virgin Israel, no more to rise. He grieves over this people that he so loves and cares for and he calls them, the Lord calls them to repentance that judgment might be averted and life might be given. And now as we, as we turn to application here, what might such a dark 
and sorrowful text be teaching us this morning? I think to begin with, it would be wise to consider what this is telling us about the character and heart of our God. You know, we, we typically think of application as something we're called to do, calling us to do something, but sometimes we also need application which is calling us to think in a certain way. And part of my concern as we journey through Amos for this season is that we might begin to have somewhat of an unbalanced view of who our God is. We're continuing week in and week out to, to consider his wrath and his acts of judgment. But I also want us to be careful to remember that the Lord is patient and kind and forbearing. And so perhaps first we should consider the strangeness of God's judgment. The strangeness of God's judgment. And part of what's so clearly presented here in Amos 5 is, is the strangeness of God's judgment. As we read Amos week in and week out, we might find it hard to remember that the emphasis in the whole of Scripture is not God's wrath and judgment, but His love and His mercy. His wrath and His judgment are there, of course, but the main focus of Scripture is God's love and God's mercy. And in light of this, some of the Puritans used to speak of God's judgment as His, they used to call it His strange work, His strange work. And what they meant by that is that while indeed the Lord does send judgment upon humanity when necessary, that's not what comes most naturally to him. The Lord is, is, is so naturally inclined to do is not judge humanity, but to be patient and forbearing and to be merciful toward humanity. That's what we find consistent with his character. As Jonathan Edwards said, in his sermons, on, on his sermon in, in Lamentations 3, he said this, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather that they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. And indeed, we, we see this so clearly here and that while Amos is, is pronouncing judgment, he's also doing it through tears. He's lamenting, grieving over the, the doom of the people of Israel and calling them to repent before it's too late. In this, we, we, we hear the, the very heartbeat of Christ as it calls us to, to, to remember the lament of Christ over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. There we find Christ weeping over Jerusalem, so reluctant in to, to, to judge and destroy her. Instead, he's saying, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? That's the message resounding from the heart of God in Amos 5 here. As he pleads with Israel to seek him and live. You, you, you get the sense that, yes, while Israel deserves judgment... He's almost reluctant to do it. He's pleading with them to turn and repent and live. To be gathered under his wings as little chicks gather under the wing of their mother. He sang over them as, as he did in Ezekiel 18.23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, or not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So you see, this is why the theologians of old would, would refer to God's judgment as this strange work. And they, they didn't actually come up with this language on their own. This comes straight from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28, 21, where Isaiah says, 
of the Lord's work of judgment. He says, for the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perazim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. Speaking of the Lord's judgment, he's saying it's a strange and alien work. And so, please, don't, don't misunderstand the heart of our God here. God, he's not a God who's irritable or impatient. He's, he's not just on the edge of his seat waiting for you to mess up that he might jump down your throat and condemn you. No, not at all. Rather, he's on the edge of his seat waiting to show you mercy. Even when you're living in sin, Christ is patient and forbearing, longing to forgive, calling to you, to you to repent, lamenting over your stubbornness. He longs to show you kindness and forgiveness and tender mercy. He longs to be gracious to you. Don't misunderstand the heart of our God. Judgment is his strange work. Still, at the same time, it's also his, his necessary work. Look with me next at the necessity of God's judgment. Well, our God is, is love. While he's patient and kind and merciful and gracious, he's also not mushy. He, he has a backbone. He's holy and righteous and just, and he does not wink at the sins of humanity. When we continue in sin without repentance, God will eventually judge both temporally in this age and eternally in the age to come. But you need to see, of course, that, that this is not inconsistent with his love. Even in his judgments, we see here in Amos 5, the result of his love and his compassion for humanity. We see here that the reason the Lord was sending his judgment upon Israel was because some of them were afflicting and oppressing the poor and weak. Others were looking away and remaining complicit in the face of their oppression. And God cannot stomach it. The poor and the vulnerable are so dear to the heart of God that throughout Holy Scripture, he often, so often takes up their cause as his own and executes vengeance on their behalf. He has a special place in his heart for those who are oppressed and poor and weak and needy. As we saw from Abraham Kuyper just several weeks ago, he said that when rich and poor stand opposed to each other, the Savior never takes his place with the wealthier, but always stands with the poorer. Powerful, he says, is the trait of compassion which is imprinted on every page of the gospel where Jesus comes into contact with the suffering and oppressed. And indeed, sometimes that, that trait of compassion, that love, that tenderness toward the poor and downtrodden takes the form of judgment on their behalf as he takes up their cause as his own. But then not only does his love for the poor necessitate his, his judgments, but the love of his own name. That's, that, that, that's what that central hymn in verses eight to nine show us. That while there is something of an aversion in God towards sending judgment upon humanity, there is an even greater aversion to anything that would compromise his glory or perfection. You see, you'll never know anything about the heinousness of sin until you see that sin is ultimately an assault upon the glory of the infinitely glorious God. 
It is, it, 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 sin is not merely a few mistakes that you've made here or there. Sin is cosmic treason against the glorious king. You may think, we may think of little white lies and racist jokes and sexist jokes as, mis, as mistakes and, and misspeaking. We may think of fudging on our taxes or participating in a juicy piece of office gossip as little mistakes or missteps. God does not. He sees it as an assault on his own glory and his glory must be avenged. My friends, we would be remiss here as we reflect on the strangeness and necessity of God's judgment if we didn't also reflect on the cross of Christ. This is why the cross stands. For in God longs to be kind and gracious and merciful to you. He longs to forgive you and to show you his unending kindness. But he cannot and he will not overlook your sin because he's holy and just and pure. It must be judged. It must be condemned. And so the answer to this dilemma is the cross. God so longed to be gracious to you and to maintain the glory of his name that he would rather take upon himself your humanity and take upon himself your sin and stand condemned in your place. And that's precisely what we find in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In in, in Jesus and in his cross, we see God's love for his own glory. His compassion for sinners and his wrath and judgment upon our sin. And it's there where you find forgiveness and you find grace. And it's yours at Christ's expense. If you would only turn away from evil and seek God instead, which brings us lastly to the call of God's judgment. This is what we're called to do. In Amos 5 here, he says, Seek me and live. See, he calls us to not merely seek a new set of religious rituals and ceremonies, not to, not to merely seek a new set of habits and disciplines and practices, not to merely seek a new routine of worship, as important as those things might be. He calls us to seek a real encounter with the living God himself, to set your heart Godward, to grab hold of him like Jacob did and to not let him go until he blesses you, to grab hold of the hem of his garment like the woman with the issue of blood and not let go until he heals you. He calls you to seek him, to seek a real encounter with him. And as you do that, here's the second thing you're called to do. Verse 14, he says, Seek good and not evil that you may live, so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. And seeking God, you're also to seek good and turn away from evil. You see, that's, there's, there's a vertical aspect to repentance, seek God. But then he also speaks of a horizontal aspect to repentance as well, seek good. There's a spiritual dimension and a social dimension as well. We've got to seek to do good to our fellow man. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We've got to do this. We've got to seek to do good. 
And, and, and you know, we, we might not use this verse to evangelize a non-Christian in our day because so often they think that this is kind of all we mean by repentance, that all Christianity really boils down to is a kind of moral reformation, that all Christianity really boils down to is the social dimension. Christianity, though, cannot be reduced to that. No, moral reformation without turning to God is blasphemy. Christianity cannot be reduced to the social dimension. You're not to just seek good, you're to seek God first and foremost. And here's the thing, though, religious people so often try to repent by trying to seek God without also seeking good. But that's not repentance either. God won't have this, this perverted sort of repentance wherein we seek an encounter with him without also seeking good, without also obeying him. That's a false seeking without also seeking to do good to our fellow man. Yes, seek me, he says, but he also says, seek good as well. We're to seek to do good wherever and whenever we can, especially as the text emphasizes here, to the poor and to the needy. Amos, he won't let us put God in a box of church and religion and spiritual fulfillment all while we fail to obey him in the horizontal aspect and the social dimensions. We cannot be considered godly if we're not concerned about the oppressed, about the unborn, about the plight of minorities in our nation, about domestic abuse and sexual abuse. And, and all, we, we cannot be considered godly without being concerned about those very things. And we cannot be content with merely abstaining from participating in those kinds of activities. We've also got to be concerned with, whatever, with doing whatever we can to put an end to those kinds of injustices. We're called to actively establish justice, not just abstain from committing injustice. Seek good, seek God, rather, but, but seek good as well. That's what we're called to in light of God's judgment. And he's pleading with us to do it here before it's too late. He doesn't want to judge and condemn. He longs to be gracious and he's being patient. He longs to show us compassion and forgiveness, but he will not wink at sin. He's got a backbone. He's not mushy. Look to the cross. Seek God there, but also look to the needs of your neighbor and your brother or sister in Christ. Seek good. And because of the cross, there's no question. God will be gracious. Amos says here in verse 15, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious, but on this side of the cross, there's no question. We know that he will be gracious. We know that he will forgive. We know that he will be gracious. Seek him, seek good. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your word so that we know about your character and your heart we know that you're a God who is fierce and holy and just and true and good. But that you're also a God who is patient and forbearing and compassionate. You're also a God who forgives when we turn to you. We pray that, that in light of that, you would, you would cause the cross to fill our eyes this morning as we transition to a time of participating in the Lord's Supper. Would you help us to truly seek you and to seek good? 
Not to try to seek good without seeking you. Not to seek you in a, in a false way. But to truly seek a real encounter with you. And to walk away changed. Reflecting more and more our Savior who's redeemed us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.